Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Labels. We love labels. As people, as society, I don't mean labels like uh, labels on jars and stuff like that, or like record labels. I mean labels like uh, stereotypes, right? Labels for people. Let's do a little experiment here. I want you to close your eyes. Trust me enough to close your eyes. Um, I'm going to say uh, some, some labels, some, some terms. And, and as I say these labels, I want you to picture in your mind a person that represents that label. It doesn't have to be an actual person from your life. It could be somebody who's theoretical, but I'll, I'll list off a couple of them. With each one, come up with somebody and what they look like, maybe how they act, okay? High school athlete. Band kid. A tomboy. By contrast, a girly girl. Blue collar. Picture in your mind somebody who's blue collar. White collar. Christian. Atheist. What do you picture when you hear that? Leader. It's a little more abstract. Leader. Follower. And then to get your ire up a little bit. Aggie. And of course, Longhorn. <laughs> Literal hissing. Okay, go ahead and open your eyes. Hissing, that's okay, sure. Yeah. Now, how many of you, by show of hands, were able to picture somebody, a kind of a picture of somebody for each of those descriptions? Raise your hand if you could picture somebody and kind of like, okay. I know that there are some people who have a hard time like visualizing stuff, just the way their brain works. But for me, like I can picture each of those people in kind of a, a stereotype in my mind, because when you hear a label, it's shorthand, isn't it? It's shorthand for their ideology, for their behavior, their attitudes towards the world around them, um, even down to like their physical attributes, how they carry themselves, what they wear. All of those things may come into kind of your label. Labels can be incredibly helpful, but also incredibly damaging right? Because they are stereotypes. They are things that we kind of uh, fill in and perhaps it paints with too broad of a brush, right? Nobody is defined by any one thing. Today we're going to be looking at some labels that Jesus gets assigned, that he got assigned back as he was in the middle of his earthly ministry, but even today. But before we go into that and take a look at that concept, let's go to our God in prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for today, for this chance that we get to come together and be in worship, whether here in this room, uh, unified by our space, or across the world watching online, unified by our belief. Lord, we thank you for this chance to be in worship, and I pray that you would focus us, focus our hearts and focus our minds on you. Lord, I thank you for the chance to share your message, and Lord, of course, let it be your message. Move me out of the way. It is not about me. I submit myself to you. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will work through me, will work in this moment. I pray that we would all be humble enough to submit ourselves to you, that your truth may be known. In your name we pray. Amen. Again, special welcome to those of you watching the sermon online. Our main text 
that we're going to be diving through today is that gospel reading, which I just shared earlier in the service, Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 20. If you are just watching this sermon, uh, go ahead and pause the video, go ahead and find Matthew 16, 13 through 20, read through it so you can catch up with where we are. But let's do a little learning first, right? A little, little didactic time taking a look at this, this gospel reading before we get into the real thematic meat of it. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, um, which is interesting because if you've been following along here uh, with the, the lectionary series, the kind of assigned readings each week, we've been going through Matthew pretty systematically. And the past couple of chapters of Matthew, the past uh, time within his ministry, Jesus has been encountering a lot of crowds, teaching people, healing people, um, going through and giving a lot of instruction, also going toe-to-toe with some of the Jewish religious leaders, right? The Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, etc. And as he's been traveling through this region of Galilee where he is, he finds himself at this area called Caesarea Philippi, which is essentially the boundary, the border, if you will, of Gentile land, right? So there's, there's Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are kind of the pagans. In fact, this area, Caesarea Philippi, used to be known for worshiping Baal, uh, the god Baal from Old Testament times, as well as the Roman god Pan. Um, but at the point that when Jesus is there, there is a temple to, if you look at the name, you may be able to figure it out, Caesar. We're kind of that like god-king concept, right? And so this is squarely in pagan territory. Now what this means is those crowds that were following Jesus, those Israelites, those Jewish people, the religious leaders, they probably aren't going to follow him into this area because they kind of were strict like do not enter zones, uh, whether it be for religious reasons or just for practical safety reasons. They didn't really get along, right? So Jesus and his disciples find themselves in this Gentile region, or at least on the, on the border of it, and it gives him the opportunity over the next three chapters of Matthew to do some more one-on-one, -on -one private, intimate teaching with his disciples. Rather than having to worry about the crowd, he's able to teach those disciples, right? So he's with his disciples and pretty much them alone, and, and it goes on to say he asked them a question. Uh, this translation says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other translations, it, it becomes apparent that he's referring to himself as the Son of Man. He's not talking about this vague concept of the Son of Man. He says, who do, you, who do they say that I, comma, the Son of Man is? Now, this is a term you hear a lot in the Gospels, Son of Man, right? Okay, Son of Man. All men are Son of Men. So why is that significant? Well, it comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 specifically, uh, where it references that God will bestow upon the Son of Man dominion and glory, right? This is a prophetic statement about somebody who is selected to be unique, the Son of Man. It's also worth noting that this is not a military statement. It's not about conquest. It's not about the Son of Man will come in on a white horse and, and take out the enemies. It's God will peacefully give over this power and dominion, right, from Daniel chapter 7. So when Jesus says the Son of Man, he's referring to himself through this messianic prophecy. So he asked basically, what are they saying? What are they saying about me? Guys, like you, we've been around these crowds. I'm busy teaching. You guys are in the midst of them. What are they saying about me? Is kind of what he's asking. And our translation again says that, that the disciples responded. It's believed that it's Peter who probably 
answers both questions here because that's kind of Peter's thing, right? Like Peter is the most excited and anxious of all. Like, oh, pick me. Like that's, that's Peter, okay? So th- he says, who do they say that I am? And, and they respond with three different people plus a little they. They say John the Baptist, the prophet Elijah, and Jeremiah. And then they say in some other prophets. Now why those three? That's kind of an odd grouping of people. John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah. Well, there's reason for this. Again, it kind of goes back to labels. Well, John the Baptist, we know for a fact that people are saying that Jesus is somehow connected to John the Baptist because we see in Matthew chapter 14, Herod says it's like he is John the Baptist come back to life, which is unique because in that chapter, it tells the story of how Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. So like, Herod, why are you the one saying that he's come back? Did you not do a good enough job? That seems like a pretty tough thing to come back from the dead for, right? Like, that. why is Herod the one saying that he is John the Baptist resurrected? Well, it's believed that it's kind of thematic, right? That they're not literally John the Baptist, but more the way John the Baptist lived, right? John the Baptist was known at this point throughout the land of gaining a big following. There were a lot of people who were coming to see him. And for a ruler like Herod, who has a group of people who maybe are a bit of a thorn in his side, anyone who can gather a following is going to be worth noting. Because a following can very quickly become what? A rebellion. A revolt. And so he's taking note of like, okay, I took care of John the Baptist and and his followers kind of disbanded, but now there's this Jesus of Nazareth guy. It's like he's the same guy over again. Right? So this is alluding to the fact that Jesus has a lot of followers. What about Elijah? Well, that's a pretty common one. You see Elijah referenced because Elijah was prophesied to return. That he would return before the day of Yahweh, so to speak. Right, The day of tribulation, the day where Yahweh returned. So this was kind of a sign of the return of God. And so they were always kind of looking for, okay, who's the next Elijah? What was it about Jesus that drew them towards that conclusion? As a prophet, Elijah was known for miracles. He was known for doing supernatural things. He was known for for doing these great deeds. And so these people are watching Jesus heal people, walk on water, do all this stuff, and they're saying, it's Elijah. It's just like Elijah. He does this supernatural miracle stuff. Must be a connection. But what about Jeremiah? That is such an odd choice, because Jeremiah, hardly on the Mount Rushmore of prophets, right? Well, Jeremiah was known for calling out the shepherds for not taking care of the sheep. Jeremiah was known for calling out the religious leaders of his day. And so it's pretty obvious to see the connection as they're watching Jesus stand up against the Pharisees, against the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, etc. They're saying, this guy's like Jeremiah from scripture that we know that the prophet who spoke against the religious institution and how they were falling short okay that's he's one of those guys and so what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out what kind of messiah jesus is well then jesus follows up with the real question he only asked the first question to really get the second question who do you say that i am And that you there, we see Peter again, Mr. Ooh, ooh, pick me. Peter responds, because he's always excited to respond, but but that you isn't singular, it's plural. If there was a new Texan version of the Bible, it'd be, who do y'all say, or maybe even who do all y'all say that I am, right? 
Now Peter does respond. He says, you are the Christ. Now, as Christians, we know what Christ means. It's Jesus' last name, right? Middle name H, right? That's, that's what it is. No, Christ, of course, as you know, is a title. It means the anointed one, the, the special one, the chosen one. Now, when it comes to our modern understanding of Christ, we recognize we are Christ, Christ Christians. And so we follow the Christ. But in those times, Christ would have been seen as potentially a political leader, potentially somebody who would lead the people of Israel. Like They have a long history of these leaders rising to the top and leading them out of tough situations, from Abraham to Moses to Joseph to David. And essentially, they're looking for the next David. They're constantly looking for a savior. This was seen in the book of Judges. This is seen in First and Second Kings, where they're constantly looking for somebody to deliver them, for, for one person to rise up. And so they're saying, Jesus, you're special. Jesus, you gain this following. You teach in such eloquent ways. Clearly, you are one of these great messiahs that we have had in the past. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, you are the son of the living God, which is a great little dig, because remember, where they are is a very pagan area, probably lots of stone and wooden idols around them. And so he's saying, these guys, these gods aren't going to move. They're not alive. You are the son of the living God, right? And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that's his Jewish given name, Bar meaning son of, son, son of Jonah, or John, depending on your translation. Um, you are Peter, Petros, Cephas, and upon this rock I will build the church. Now this has become a bit of a controversial statement in the history of the church. See, in the Catholic church, when they say, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, they think that is literally Peter and Peter alone. It is this guy. And from that we get this theoretically unbroken lineage of the papacy, the popes. And they believe because he gave this blessing to Peter that somehow Peter is more than the others. And thus they give the power and authority to the Pope. But in the Protestant church, we go, hold on. In other spots, Jesus gives the same power and authority to all the disciples. So why is Peter different? Well, we look at that and we say, well, what if he's not actually talking about Peter, this Petros that he's talking about? Is this statement of faith? Right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds, you don't know this. You haven't been seeing this. It's been exposed to you because God gave you that faith. And it's upon that faith that I will build the church. It's upon that statement of trust in God's identity, trust in God's messianic prophecy. Right, And so that's where the Protestant church lands. But I think it's important for us in our modern times, some 2,000 years later, to look at that very question that Jesus asks to his disciples, to the church. You say that Jesus is. Because just as we saw in Jesus' times, there were a lot of different people who had different interpretations of how this Messiah would act. As we were going through the, the triumphal entry and all that, we saw that some thought he would be a military warrior who would literally, with sword and horse, lead the way and drive out the Romans and restore land for Israel. Others believed he would be a political force, that he would use his, his quick wit, his, his eloquent speaking, and the fact that he had this big following, that he would lead a political revolution. Others just thought he was 
who's this great teacher that would help them to, to band together and unite. There are all these different interpretations. What about us now? How do you see Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Some of you may see Jesus as the leader of the church, the founder, the, the, the president of this particular club, right? That he should be honored because he's kind of the, the central figure. Not dissimilar to like Teddy Roosevelt in the national parks, right? Like, oh, he deserves a lot of credit for all of this. He's the founding member of the Christian church. And it's all about coming together in this club. Some of you view Jesus as the judge of your morality, the arbiter of right and wrong, that he is the one who will determine if on the big scales of cosmic justice you've done enough good to outweigh the bad, that he's just there to say whether you're right or wrong. Some of you just aren't sure about this whole thing. And maybe you've done enough historical research to know that, that there was, in fact, and there's a lot of extra-biblical evidence, that there was a man named Jesus, or Yeshua, who lived in Nazareth and had a great following and seemingly performed some amazing deeds. And you say, you know, I'm not sure about it. I buy in the whole Son of God thing, but he seemed like a pretty good teacher. I like when I read the Gospels and what he's teaching and, and compassion for me. I can get behind that. He, he, he was a great teacher. And then my hope is, because we're here in church, that the majority of you would look at Jesus and see him for what it records in scripture, that he was the physical manifestation of an eternal God, that he was Emmanuel, God with us, that he lived with the help of his fully God side, a perfect life. And then because of his fully man's side, was able to go to the cross as the perfect sacrifice to outweigh our own sins, to justify our sins, to set us free. And if that's what you believe, that last one, that should impact your life beyond just one hour on Sunday morning. There are 168 hours in the week. It should impact you for the other 167. Because that changes everything. If we have an Emmanuel, a God who came down and was in the midst of us and still showed compassion and mercy to even the worst sinners that nobody else would talk to, and then was willing to go to the cross for you, for me, for us, that should change everything. That should change how you treat other people, right? Because if you've been forgiven your sins by nothing that you've brought, then you should be doing the same to others, as difficult as that is. That should change everything because it means that you've been set free, not by a great teacher 2,000 years ago, not by a political person who, who said the right thing in a speech in a debate, not by a military conquest who, who took out enemies temporarily, but by God himself who is steadfast and abiding. That changes everything. That should become the core of your identity. Which leads me to a question that isn't asked, that perhaps we should also ask ourselves. Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? Perhaps we should ask, who does God say I am? Because we know what the people say about us. We know what we say about ourselves. We hear those labels 
lazy, not fulfilling potential, overbearing, a, a bully, divisive. We hear those labels put on us constantly. But that is not the label of God. That is not who God sees us to be. That's what the people say about us. But what does God say about you? For you, he says, you are blessed. You are beloved. You are my child. You are my creation. No, no, no. You are my masterpiece. Because in Genesis, when God created the world, each day he said, and it was good. But then when he created mankind, he said that it was very good because we are his masterpiece. And yes, he sees the sin, but he also sees the forgiveness. Yeah, he sees the brokenness, and yet he mends us. He repairs us. He restores us. He restores you. What does God say about you? Stop listening to what the people say about you. Stop listening to what the world says about you. Stop listening to what you and your sinful, angry self, stop listening to what you say about you. Instead, listen to what God says about you. We are unique. We each have our story and our background. We each have our gifts, right? And yet we are the church. The Greek word is ekklesia, which means called out. Not called in. Not called to come and sing a couple songs and sit in a bench for a little while and then feel pretty good about life and off we go. No, the ekklesia is called out into the world because we are the body of Christ. Christ, the anointed one. Christ, the Savior. Christ, the one who would come to save the people, to pull them out of the suffering and struggle of this world, to place them on a firm foundation, to shine a light in the midst of the darkness. We are the body of Christ. The church is called to be that in this world. That is our collective identity brought together solely by the faith that we have. It's not our own faith. Boy, we get so haughty and proud, don't we? We say, well, I go to church every Sunday. At least I'm better than that person. I'm a Christian. When I said Christian and atheist, did you picture one is better than the other? The only thing that separates you from an atheist is the faith that God has inspired within you. The Holy Spirit bringing that faith to you. And we get to be united by nothing else than that. So here now in this place, we skipped the Apostles' Creed earlier because that is a statement of faith. That is the disciples working together. That is the apostles working together. That is the church working together, united to proclaim this is what we believe. And that belief is the rock upon which the church is built. It is the rock upon which the body of Christ exists. But let's do it a little different. There in front of you, in your pews, except for you guys in the front row, are some kneelers. Go ahead and flip those down. We don't do this often, but they're there. And I think it's important for us to take a posture of humility. And kneeling is a stance of humility because we need to recognize that the faith that we have is not because of us. The salvation we have is not because of us. 
And so we take a posture of humility. If you're able, kneel. If you're not sure about this whole thing and you're like, whoa, this is some weird cult behavior, that's okay. You can stay in your seat. That's perfectly fine. We won't judge you, I promise. But let's kneel before our God in a posture of humility and confess together our Apostles' Creed, the Creed, what we believe. Together we profess, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Go ahead and move back to your seat. This is the faith that we have. This is the faith that draws us here. This is the faith that unites us. And we humbly approach our God, knowing that that faith is what saves us through Jesus Christ. It is not our own, but it is his. It is the free gift of grace. Let that be who God says you are. A beloved, redeemed, forgiven, and saved child of God. Amen.